Ready to start your ESG journey? Get going today with Social Suite, and you could start reporting publicly in 30 days. With investor pressure mounting and regulations just around the corner, there's never been a better time to start your ESG reporting. Social Suite takes the complexity out of environmental, social, and governance reporting. Social Suite helps organizations to measure, monitor, and report on their progress with fast, simple, and affordable software. Create value through ESG in order to raise capital, improve brand and reputation, as well as mitigate risk. Social Suite has helped almost 100 micro to small cap companies report on ESG, with some starting their baseline report in under 60 minutes and reporting publicly within 30 days. ESG is a lot easier than you think, and you're probably already doing it. So take your sustainability reporting to the next level with measurable progress. Start your ESG journey today with Social Suite, an ESG software company for micro to small caps. Visit socialsuitehq.com. That's social, S-U-I-T-E-H-Q.com to learn more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Brian Freeman, executive chairman of the Real Good Food Company, publicly traded company. The symbol is RGF on NASDAQ. Real Good Foods is a leading health and wellness frozen foods company, providing a better way to enjoy your favorite foods. The company's mission is to provide real food you feel good about eating, making delicious, nutritious foods that are low in sugar, low in carbohydrates, and high in protein. The Real Good Foods family of products includes breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks available in over 16,000 stores nationwide with additional direct-to-consumer options. I've interviewed companies in the frozen food space over the years, and I wanted to chat with Brian today about the industry as it exists today, especially since COVID, as well as how RGF positions their frozen food products and the frozen foods total addressable market, Real Good Foods product differentiation, digital marketing strategy by working with social media influencers, and their growth strategy and path to profitability. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Brian Freeman, Executive Chairman of the Real Good Food Company. Brian, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to doing this. Absolutely. And look, you guys just reported earnings. Isn't fun earnings season? You got to love, gotta love earnings season time, right? Absolutely. We just absolutely love earnings season. But uh, no, all kidding aside, I kind of enjoy the rigors of quarterly reporting and um, done it a lot in my past career. And it's certainly um, being a public company, you've, uh, you know, dirty laundry and all gets out there. And, and uh, that's one of the good things about being public, frankly, it makes us a better, better company. Absolutely. It's all about that transparency. Yes, sir. So, First line I always ask everybody on here is, what would you say is that one line that best describes the Real Good Food Company? Yeah, I mean, at Real Good Foods, we're here to modernize frozen food by making more nutritious products that are craveable for as many people as possible. That's Nutrition, great. yeah. Do you like that one? Right, that's good. I like that. Look, hey, that gives us that gives us a lot of meat, no pun intended. So 
you know, look, the company's been around for a little bit. Let's get that that overview in history. What was the original thesis for its start? And then how did it get to where it's at today? Yeah, so the company was founded in 2016 on the premise that we're in, you know, all of us are eating too many carbohydrates, too much sugar, and not enough protein in the foods that we actually all want to eat. So I don't know about you, but I know that I'm not going to stop eating Mexican food or Italian food or, you know, all the things that we want to eat. And the problem is, is the more of that stuff you eat, uh, the more obese you become, the more health problems you have. Uh, we've got a third of the population that are either pre-diabetic or have diabetes, according to the CDC. Uh, 57% of all U.S. adults uh, try to reduce their carbohydrates over the last 52 weeks. Why do we do that? Because we now understand, I think everyone understands that carbohydrates are really sugar. And I don't, I, you know, there's never going to come a time where any of us are going to say, hey, I want more sugar in my diet. So it's really simple. If we can get the sugar and carbohydrates out and replace it with protein in really craveable uh, products like enchiladas, uh, we're going to grow a business really fast, really big while doing good for everyone. Uh, and so that's, that's our whole mission. I think it's why we've grown so fast you know, in the frozen food section. Why frozen food? Well, I mean, walk the frozen food aisle. There's, there's nothing in there. It's very difficult to find anything in there that's not loaded with carbohydrates. You know, even the brands that say that they're good for you, if you turn them over and look at the nutritional fact panel, you won't be able to tell the difference uh, in terms of the amount of sugar and carbohydrates and the lack of protein as like a Hot Pocket or Stouffer's uh, macaroni and cheese. So that's the opportunity. We're executing that plan, and that's why you know we doubled the business uh, last year, and we're you know we're going to come close to doubling it this year. And we think that we're just getting started. And I'll talk to you more at an appropriate time about the overall size of frozen food in America and the you know North America for that matter, and how you know we think we're really only in the second inning of our growth journey. Absolutely. Hey, let's stick it in right now. You know, tell us right. why not. I mean, you, yeah. set, you set me up. So tell All me. Right. All right, cool. So frozen food in America is about $58 billion category. Uh, it's growing at about a 6% three-year CAGR. And, you know, real good foods. I mean, we guided to $150 million in revenue uh, for this year. And on the quarterly call, we said that, uh, you know, we see 200 million for next year. Uh, so we're still really small and young, uh, given the size of the category and the category is growing. Now you overlay, go walk the frozen food aisle and you go and look at our products. That strong uh, differentiation is why we think that uh, we've got a lot of growth ahead. And what we've said publicly is, you know, our view is we can get this to half a billion dollars in uh, three to five years. Uh, the other thing I would I would mention is, you know, uh, our household penetration. What's that? How many people have actually bought your product in the prior 52 weeks is up to 8.6%. So one in 12 U.S. households uh, has our product today. Number two only to Amy's if in the uh, better for you segment of frozen food. That's a remarkable number, given the fact that we've only been in grocery stores for less than five years. We view household penetration as a leading indicator for future growth. That's a lot of folks that, um, you know, want our product and shows that our thesis around carbohydrates and sugar is durable and growing. 
Absolutely. All right, let's get into the product set right now. You know, if you go on your website, I mean, it really runs the gamut. You got chicken nuggets, General Sow's chicken, you know, yeah. breakfast bowls, you know. So tell us what, you know, some of the product set, what tends to be the most popular uh, bought product and then also where it's currently sold. I think I saw the most recent press release, like about 16,000 stores. So can we get yeah. into all that? Yeah, for sure. So our strategy is different from other frozen food companies. What you see when you walk the grocery aisle is you'll see a brand in one segment of frozen. So as an example, you'll see one brand that only does entrees, okay? In the case of Amy's, they do two. They do frozen pizzas and they do single serve entrees. Our strategy is, in you know, how do we solve for these problems of carbohydrates and sugar for all day parts and all eating occasions? So that gives us permission You'll see us show up in the in the frozen breakfast category with our breakfast sandwiches and breakfast bowls. Then you walk down the aisle and you see single serve entree bowls. So you see our entrees there. That's two. Breaded poultry or otherwise known as chicken nuggets. That's another category within frozen. And then snack and appetizers is a fourth category that we're in. What does this mean as a potential investor? It means that instead of having to get to half a billion dollars in revenue in one category, which I would say is pretty hard to do, our job is to simply, we can get there participating in four categories. And we only need a modicum of success to get to half a billion given the size of the category. Real Good Foods is winning. What does that mean? Our velocities, let me back up. What does velocities mean? That means how much product you're selling per store per item. We're typically in the top quartile of velocities in the categories we participate in. So if you've got products that are turning well and are bringing new users to the category for your retail partners, then you then have permission to extend distribution. And like you said, I mean, we're in 16,000 uh, doors today, but we only have about 10 items per store. Our job is to extend that to 30, 40 items. And if we do that, we'll get to, you know, half a billion in revenue in three, four years. Absolutely. Now, another question I have for you is who's that, who's that target customer? And I want to preface it with this, you know, I'm one of those folks that like, I, I'm a big ingredient looker, you know, I, I, me personally, I tend, I tend to avoid things that have tons of ingredients or like, you know, none of the seed oils or anything like that, you know, yep. so, so, you know, who would you say is your, your target customer for the real good food uh, product? You know, I love how you went to a specific need state instead of demography. One of the things that we're pretty passionate about is we think that looking at consumers based on demography is antiquated. You know, millennial, Agreed. Gen Z. I mean, if that is so 1990s uh, and it doesn't work. And one of the reasons why we're winning is we never took that approach. We took our approach based on specific consumer need state, regardless of socioeconomic or age group. So we have six verticals. Um, and so one will be, as an example, restrictive diets such as diabetes. Okay. Folks who have uh, that, that situation, you know, we're going to talk to them differently and they're looking at they're looking at our products to solve that problem. On the other hand, we have on the other side of the scale, we found that gamers, uh, Call of Duty players care a lot about nutrition and convenience through microwavable food. And so we, we have community managers that organize that community and interact with them through micro and nano content creators. 
Uh, we have fitness folks, people who are just really interested in fitness. But with regard to how you're thinking about the category with, re, you know, with the clean ingredient state, uh, statement, our view is that's sort of table stake. Uh, I mean, why would you commercialize an item today with, uh, you know, unnatural ingredients? I think that that is table stakes and we, we're obligated to do that with all of our products. So anyway, to summarize, six different verticals, ind individual community managers for each of those verticals. We communicate out to 1,500 micro and nano uh, content creators. And the result of that is today, Real Good Foods has the largest social community footprint of any frozen food brand in America. Go on Instagram, check us out, and look at you know the number of followers, look at the engagement, go on Facebook, Pinterest, right, TikTok, look at what we're doing, and then compare us to another food brand. And you know, the good news for us in the frozen food uh, industry is they're like back in the 1980s or 90s, and so um, compare us to our peers. And I think you'll see why we're winning uh, and growing so fast. That's interesting. Why did you decide to go down that path? You know, I come from large uh, frozen food businesses, and I've seen total destruction of capital of uh, large frozen food companies, hiring agencies, and all the rest. Meanwhile, um, about 10 years ago, I saw a company called Quest Nutrition just crush it on Instagram. To, and, and it's my my belief they were the first to leverage ig uh to uh, for a food item and the guy running marketing over there was a buddy of mine and i would literally go over there and hang out and just learn and i just got so envious of what those guys were doing and i said you know uh if i get involved with another early stage business in my career i want to learn from that amplify it make it better and that's what we've executed on uh over the last three four years of real good Social Suite takes the complexity out of environmental, social, and governance, or ESG reporting. Social Suite helps organizations to measure, monitor, and report on their progress to create value through ESG in order to raise capital, improve brand and reputation, as well as mitigate risk. Social Suite's software platform makes ESG reporting fast, simple, and affordable. Companies can start building a baseline report in under 60 minutes and start reporting publicly within 30 days. Start your ESG journey today. Visit socialsuitehq.com. That's social, S-U-I-T-E-H-Q.com to learn more. So I, I want to take another step back and go to the beginnings back, you know, 2016, you got the product, it's ready to go. You're still optimizing. You maybe have a couple of products, you know, what was the process getting it into stores and getting shelf space and maybe displacing some of the other legacy items that were there? Yeah. So in 2016, the company was founded and our founder was really selling the product uh, online, direct to consumer and building a sort of a, what I'll call a cult following uh, for some of the initial products. I came along in 2017, and my job was to really, uh, you know, take the food, scale it, and then go into uh, retail grocery. And what I'd say with the frozen category in general is, you it, you really need experience, uh, you know, working with these retailers. I've I've personally been in the frozen food industry for 20 years. Uh, prior to Real Good. You know, I was with uh, Advanced Pierre Foods. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar uh, frozen foods company. 
uh, and Tyson. And, and so I brought several people from Advance Pierre with me. And, um, you know, we've got a really talented, highly motivated team that came over in 2017, 2018. That's really helped scale the business from essentially, you know, we we're we we're doing about a half a million dollars in uh, 2016. And, and to go to 150 uh, this year is pretty cool. Absolutely. I got a dumb question for you. I love asking sure. these dumb questions. You ready for a dumb one? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, look, you see the explosion of Shark Tank and stuff like this. You know, you see a lot of these frozen foods that go on there. And, you know, some of them get deals, some of them don't. You know, but, you know, you end up seeing some crazy growth in some of them. You know, and I'll be honest, I think the branding's really cool. You know, I haven't tried the food. Um, but was there at all a thought like, hey, maybe, I don't know take it to Shark Tank, do it kind of like that and do it like, I don't know. And like I said, this is a really dumb question. I'm sure my audience is like, Bob, what the hell are you doing? But like, I don't know. It's, I mean, I'm just looking at it. It's like, it, it has, it has good eye appeal. I can tell. Yeah. No, you know, it's the way I think about it is things like Shark Tank or let's go get a Kardashian involved or whatever. What that's going to do is get you awareness, but I'm not sure it's durable. Um, and so where we've invested our time and, and money in is micro and nano content creators. And our thesis is those conversations, we have hundreds of conversations going on every day with our community, those authentic one-on-one, -on, one -on -one, two-way conversations about the food, about what we stand for, about what we're trying to do to help each other um, are more durable. And you build a more uh, passionate, loyal base of consumers. Um, it takes more time, but it's my experience that if you go get, if you go do something big, and you go pay a Kardashian or you know fill in the blank, you get a big burst of awareness. But I'm not sure it lasts. And what we're trying to do is build the foundation, which we we've done and are doing, that uh, gives us permission to be here 10, 20 years from now. And I think you do it. Uh, with small content creators that may only have five or 10,000 followers, but the trust level between them and their community are very strong and the engagement very strong. So that's been our strategy and we'll continue to build it out. The other thing I wanted to mention regarding the marketing piece that we're doing that uh, other food companies I'm not aware are, are really leaning in like we are, we have over a quarter of a million SMS tech subscribers. So and when we push a text out to you, you know, we get about a 90% open rate. And obviously, when our products show up in your area code, we're going to give you the good news. Or if they go on deal, we'll give you the good news. Having that connection with the consumer, and remember, they opted in to, to get those texts, is, is really valuable. And that's how we're driving incremental users to the categories we participate in. So another question I have for you, you know, in the food industry, I've done a few interviews with uh, some other folks in the food industry right now. And over the last, you know, everybody's been struggling with COVID and supply chains and all that stuff, but love to hear how real good food, assuming that there was some sort of supply chain issue with getting food and getting product, you know, was there an issue? And if there was, how the company overcame it? Yeah, um, I'll tell you, I, like I said, I've been in this for 20 years, never seen anything like it before um, in two areas. One, during COVID, was just supply of labor. Um, you know, it was it was it was really hard, and that trickled throughout this entire supply chain. So every day was an adventure. 
Um, and then two, what we've seen just recently over the last couple of quarters is significant fluctuation in our commodity costs, our, our core commodity input. So, you know, rather than rehashing COVID, we got through it. It was hard, um, long hours, and you've got to have really committed folks. We got through it. But I'd like to talk about what happened in Q3 and what we see happening in Q4, kind of bring it up, bring it forward to today. And Let's do it. What, yeah, what I'll tell you is, is in Q3, you saw our uh, gross margins uh, down, and that was a result of very expensive uh, commodity costs, specifically in uh, raw chicken, cheese, and uh, our pork-based products, such as bacon, really flowing through the quarter as a result of finished goods and input cost inventories associated with Q2. Uh, good news is we are finally through that and we've really seen a collapse in our commodity costs in Q4. And what we said on the call is uh, we see as much as six to 10% gross margin improvement just based on commodity cost improvements. And so to just help you dimensionalize just raw chicken uh, costs, um, you know, the five-year historical mean uh, for the speck of chicken we typically use is about $1.42 a pound. And what we saw in Q2 and flowing through in Q3 is prices as high as $3.60 a pound, uh, historically wow. high uh, prices. Fortunately, supply, it was a supply and demand dislocation. Fortunately, supply has really come on the market now. And we are buying uh, material today uh, significantly below the 145 year historical mean. So uh, that's a significant tailwind to our profitability in Q4. We're seeing the cheese market soften as well. And uh, bacon prices have actually come down as well. So, you know, that's a significant change and catalyst uh, to our profitability and gross margin story for Q4. And, we think it's going to continue to play out into 2023. I got to ask, why? Why? What ended? What was the change? Why? Why was there now a collapse in some of these commodity prices? Yeah, so it's largely cyclical. And what we saw during COVID is the chicken processors, such as Tyson. Tyson represents about 22% of total supply of chicken to the market. They simply were having difficulty getting people in the plants to process the chicken. Um, and then you had uh, avian flu outbreak occur, and so it was a perfect storm, and we saw these historically high prices. With those high prices, what happens? And, uh, you know, other suppliers start to provide supply, and, you know, as we all know, everyone's back to work now. So our attendance rates in our plants and everyone else's plants are, you know, up, and so you know, Tyson on their quarterly call uh, earlier uh, last week, you know, said that they're going to bring on as much as uh, 4% additional supply, and they're going to lean in and continue to increase supply. Others will follow. And so that's what's really driving uh, the chicken supply market right now. Got it. So uh, another question that I always ask everybody on here is, you know, I mean, look, it seems like the real good food company is an easy story to understand, right? You sell them health and wellness, frozen food products to, you know, to the masses, you know, both, you know, direct to consumer and also in stores, but, you know, you've been doing a couple some, some conferences now for a little bit. I mean, what, what do investors get most confused about still when they hear the story, even if they're familiar with it? 
you know, I don't, I don't, I, I think it is a simple story. I don't think investors really get confused um, and they see the opportunity. Uh, they understand the brand uh, and what we're doing. I think they, they see, you know, management's background, how uh, we're not first timers doing this. So, you know, I think it's just, you know, a matter of time for market dynamics uh, and the broader uh, equity markets to kind of turn around. And I think those that are leaning in with us now will be rewarded. That's that's kind of my view of it. All right. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask a, uh, a, a different version of this question. OK, what, let's do it. What are some of the most frequently asked questions that you get for, um, when you do one on ones and meet with institutions, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, they want to understand. Uh, obviously, everybody wants to get a feel for what's going to happen in the future. They want to understand what's going to be your growth driver. Uh, and what are your catalysts to profitability? And so on the growth driver side, we're really, it's a distribution story. Just to help dimensionalize that, today, Amy's, which is about a $600 million a year business, has about a million points of distribution in the United States. Uh, we only have 160,000 points of distribution. So we're still a young company that um, has a long long runway of growth just through distribution. Okay, so that's number one. In terms of catalyst to profitability, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. We've, we, we finally got through the commodity, uh, you know, headwind, and now it's actually turning into a tailwind. And second is our conversion cost. What does it cost us to make the product? And what we've said publicly is, we took the proceeds from going public in November, and really invested it into a state-of-the-art, uh, very high-speed automated facility in the Midwest. That facility is online now. Mm -hmm. It's running at a, at a nice pace during Q4. And so that will bring down our conversion costs. So those two things combined, plus leveraging the existing SGNA, gets us to a path of profitability and positive EBITDA next year. For sure. And that was literally going to be my next question was, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that's probably the number one question you get all the time, a path to profitability, all that stuff. Um, yep. And, you know, going down, going down the, the road of, look, let's say looking at comps, you know, to maybe put some more things in perspective, you know, looking at fellow comps, you know, what have been some of their cycles when it comes to, you know, from beginning to, you know, getting sales, ramping up sales growth to then starting to turn a profit? I mean, is is real good on a similar trajectory or maybe I think I think that would be good to get some more perspective there. Yeah. I mean, if you go back five years or so, even longer than that, um, what you saw happening is when capital was and interest rates were basically at zero, what you saw were company entrepreneurs and leaders really just doing growth, only worried about growth and not worried about profitability. And in my mind, you saw a total destruction of capital and some of these, and you guys know the names of some of these businesses that have destroyed hundreds of millions of dollars and are still not profitable today and are still saying, oh, We'll do it in 2024, 2025. Today's environment requires uh, experienced, committed management teams that know how to make money. And to me, um, that's the team we have over here are real good. So I would say, given how young we are, we're further along the path than others that uh, are predecessors. And so, you know, it's not just about growth. It's about profitability, and we're committed to that. 
And I think it takes a commitment from the folks that are operating the business all the way down to the, to the you know, our talented team that's out in the processing facilities. For sure. It's being committed, you know, this whole playbook about, oh, I'm just going to grow the business and uh, we'll do more equity rounds and all that. that those days are long gone. And, and because now investors can get yield out of, uh, you know, treasuries. And so if, if, if they're going to come into these growth a- assets, you know, investors want to see, uh, you know, free cash flow positive. They want to see uh, EBITDA positive. And last comment I'll make is, you know, back when we went public on a roadshow a year ago, um, we said we would not be profitable until 2024. And when we saw the market turn over, um, we came forward, I believe it was in uh, January of this year, and said, hey, we're going to bring that a full year forward, and we're going to be EBITDA positive in 2023. And we said we're going to be adjusted EBITDA positive in this quarter, Q4 uh, 2022. So, you know, that's what investors want to see, uh, I believe. And I think as being good stewards of capital, that's, that's what we need to go execute. Absolutely. Hey, one one last question on on that. You know, for those that you know, they look at those first two line items, right? They see revenue and then cost of sales. You know, cost of sales is is high. You know, can you explain that a little bit? Is that from the strategy of of, of working very closely, uh, you know, with uh, digital marketing and stuff like that? Lo- love to learn a little more there. Yeah. So, in terms of gross margin, just in the frozen food industry, world class players, multinational, multi-billion dollar uh, businesses in the frozen food industry will have about a 32 to 35% gross margin. Okay. Um, you know, our goal in the, sh- in the short and medium term is to achieve, you know, high teens, low twenties. If we do that, you know, I think you'll see us be EBITDA positive. Uh, but that's our goal. And that's what we're trying to do. And over time, as we fill up the plants, uh, continue to scale, our long term goal is to is to be world class, which would be about a 32 to 35% gross margin. And that's, that's our goal for the long term. Got it. One more devil's avid kitty uh, type yeah, question for, for you. Sure. Um, you know, in your opinion, you know, you have you you stated some of the goals for the company, not just you know EBITDA positive, path profitability, but then also getting to a half a million in sales. I mean, what would you say are some of the company's downside risks that could halt some of those those goals that you hope to to achieve? Yeah, I think you know, I, for me personally, the way I think about it, the revenue story. I don't really, if I were to rank risks, it would not be in the top three or four. I feel that. I feel pretty good about the momentum that the brand has, high household penetration, the repurchase rates on the product, our social community. I, I, I don't think it's a revenue issue uh, or, or I would not rank that as, a, as one of the top risks. I think, you know, just uh, increasing our gross margins to achieve, you know, 22, 24, 25% gross margins as quickly as possible. You know, that's hard work. Those are hard yards, block and tackle every single day. And that's what we're focused on. Um, and, you know, I'd say that that's what we're really maniacal about. Like internally, we don't really, we're not working really hard. Strike that. I don't mean that we're not working. We're focused on margin. It, you know, the revenue is coming and, and is there. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I would say, uh, 
you know, just filling up these plants as we continue to get scale, uh, things get a lot easier all the way down, up and down the PL uh, line. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, I would follow up with, you know, so I, I get when you say that you're not, you're not too worried about on the revenue side of things. Um, but I guess maybe what would be the downside risk in on margin, right? Like the focus yeah. is on margin, you know, where, where could that potentially go wrong? I mean, we're dealing right. We're, we're in an inflationary environment, you know, even on the revenue side too, right? Like uh, again, we're in this inflationary environment, you know, the, spending might potentially be going down, you know, I just, I just wanted to hear a little more perspective on that side. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, look, commodity costs can always go against you. Um, But what we're seeing out of the poultry producers, that's our number one commodity. um, You know, we feel really good about it for 2023. Um, On the revenue side, you know, look, I mean, um, we've just got a lot of momentum right now. We, you know, and our new products are working really hard for us. You know, our breaded poultry, uh, it, we put it on shelf in uh, one large national retailer and it is in the top 10% of all items in that door outside the majority of Tyson and Purdue are chicken nuggets. So we're really excited about the performance of that. Now what the sales team needs to do is just increase the distribution of that and the revenue will come. Um, so, you know, there's always going to be commodity issues, uh, freight, you know, you could, you know, you could see a downside risk with freight maybe. Uh, but you know, what I believe uh, we're seeing in the economy in general, just talking on a macro point of view, it was a supply, uh, issue, not a demand issue that was really driving inflation. I mean, we shut the economy down and then all of a sudden, uh, turned it back on. And I think, Yes, I understand that the Fed put too much liquidity out there, but I, to me, it was a dislocate. It was more of a supply side dislocation, not demand. Um, now we're going to crush demand uh, going forward by the Fed actions, but I really view real good foods as a safe harbor for that. And here's why: if you go back and look at how frozen food did in every economic downturn in recent memory, and I was in frozen food in in '08. Frozen food actually benefited. Why? People stopped going to restaurants and they start eating more at their home. And when you eat at home, you want convenient, complicated food. Frozen food is a great solution for that. So frozen food benefits from uh, economic downturn. Secondly, when you bring it down to the real good food side of it, there's two things I would say. One, um, our distribution footprint is you know, we, we are over-indexed in what I'll call value-oriented uh, retailers. Our retail partners are those that deliver value. They're not luxury, uh, you know, uh, retail outlets. That uh, That's not where we sell our products. We're, we're very much into mass and we're in the club channel. And that's where the, the user gets the most uh, bang for their buck. And that's where you see foot traffic will actually grow in a recessionary uh, environment. So, you know, and then finally, our brand design, we're delivering more protein than our conventional counterparts. In most cases, two to three times more protein. And for those families that are really feeling the pressure through a recession, they, they're looking for protein in a way to nourish their families. And that's exactly what we do. So I, I would, I view us as sort of a safe harbor um, as, as you know, the consumer continues to come under more and more pressure in 2023. 
You know, those were the exact same sentiments that you know, I interviewed uh, Mama Mancini's not that long ago. And it was yep. a very, very similar mindset. Right. And it makes and it makes total sense. Um, yep. And so, the data proves it out. I yeah. mean, Frozen will benefit from this. For sure. How do you think about it in terms of that being like a, a you know, a cyclical blip versus like still just to continue? You know, is that something a year from now that we're going to be like, all right, you know, recessionary environment. Yeah, we saw growth in sales right here, but now decline. I mean, I'm sure those are things that you think about in terms of when you just think about your own supply demand controls uh, within the company. Yeah. So, look, no one has a crystal ball, but my view is I actually believe that um, we may see the Fed reverse course in early 24. I, I really believe that. Um, and look, I mean, we're in this sweet spot where we're delivering protein to families who are really under pressure and we have a distribution footprint that uh, is where they're already shopping and that foot traffic will grow. And then, you know, in an up uh, economy, I mean, people are always going to be trying to look at their sugar and carbohydrate intake and want tasty, craveable food. So, I mean, I know it sounds like I'm pitching my book and I am, but I'm telling you, that's my, that's how I see it. I really see it playing out that. I would be worried if we were some luxury item that people, you know, uh, could trade out of. But our brand differentiation is pretty unique. Absolutely. All right. So my my we're, we're there. But uh, my final question for you today, you know, to close this out again, from what you can tell us. Uh, we're, we're, and you mentioned a little bit in terms of your growth, where you want to see the company that half a million in revenue. Uh, it, where do you see the company in three to five years? And then what would you say are the inflection points that'll get you there? Yeah, um, you know, I think in three to five years, we'll, we'll be at a half a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, it's a highly profitable business at that point because, you know, we can get there with our existing manufacturing footprint and our SGNA. So we'll really start to leverage uh, what's going on below the line. Um, you know, for us, it's just simply uh, increased distribution um, and just running that play. And just, you know, we have the products capable of uh, driving that, that revenue. And all we need to do is just go get the product in front of the consumers so they can buy us. All right. I think that's a great place to end it. Brian, where can our audience go and find more information about the Real Good Food Company? be great to go on IG at Real Good Foods. And obviously we have a website, but I think to get a feel for the brand and understand what we're doing and seeing the engagement and love, check us out on IG or we have a VIP group on, on Facebook. We went old school. You'll learn a lot about us that way. Facebook is old school now. I it, love it. No, totally. <laughs> and, and just in case the website uh, for everybody listening is realgoodfoods.com. You know, they have an investor center and everything there as well. Yeah. So Brian, thank you for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. I look forward to our next update. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.